Now let's move to your peripheral nervous system. These are your motor nerves and sensory nerves. These are the ones that start to branch out from your spinal cord and then go to various areas of your body. The two cranial nerves we're going to talk about would be the ocular and the vagus. You need to memorize those. And the one spinal nerve we want to talk about is the phrenic nerve. And the phrenic nerve is responsible for your diaphragm, which means it's responsible for your breathing. Now, just for your own education edification, we have 31 pairs of spinal nerves. As far as cranial nerves, there are 12 pairs. And as mentioned before, we are worried about the ocular motor, which is the third cranial nerve, and the vagus, which is the 10th cranial nerve. For testing purposes, you, not, you have to know that the third is ocular motor, or ocular motor is the third, as well as tenth is vagus, or vagus is tenth. You have to know this. Your ocular motor nerve is responsible for pupil constriction. Your tenth vagus nerve is responsible for a drop in heart rate. It's a parasympathetic response. So this goes back to what I was telling you at the beginning of the lecture. If you have a patient who has an accelerated heart rate, as a paramedic, if I find someone who's in SVT, which is supraventricular tachycardia, this is at a heart rate above 160, a patient cannot maintain this heart rate for a long period of time. So as I set up my medications to treat this particular medical emergency, I can have my patient do a Valsalva maneuver, and that's stimulating the 10th vagus nerve. Now, there are various different ways I can have the patient do this. I can simply have the patient bear down, in other words, clench their chest as if they were going to the bathroom. I could have the patient wrap their lips around their thumb and tell them to blow on their thumb, which also puts that chest or stimulates the chest to compress on itself, causing it to stimulate the 10th vagus nerve. Or I could take a syringe without its needle, tell the patient to put it, put the syringe in their mouth and try it and attempt to blow out the stopper, which they're not going to be able to do. But that type of pressure, what it's doing is it's putting pressure across the 10th vagus nerve in hopes that it's going to stimulate it enough to lower the heart rate from where it's at. So this is why it's important for the EMT to know. So your system is voluntary and involuntary. Under the involuntary category, you want to think sympathetic and parasympathetic. You also want to think about the word homeostasis. Our body is always trying to get into a condition of homeostasis. In other words, I want to feel good. Your body is the only thing that's responsible for homeostasis. You have to understand that there is nothing in EMT, paramedic, or doctor can do to put you back into homeostasis. That's treatment. Homeostasis is your body's own mechanisms trying to correct what may be wrong with it. So for an example, if you go out in the sun and you decide to go for a run, when you get back from your run, your body's going to do various different things to get your heart rate back to normal, your breathing back to normal, and regulate your temperature. Nothing externally can be part of that process. So if you ever see test questions that ask you, what are, what are homeostasis or what are, what are all the things that are homeostasis except? That except is anything that's external. So any treatment that the EMT provides is going to be the answer to that question. Now, what is a sympathetic stress response? A sympathetic stress response is your body 
giving you the ability to be able to fight or flight. That's what it's known as. You probably by this time have heard about fight or flight conditioning. When your body senses some type of danger, it decides that it's now going to put you into a sympathetic response. That sympathetic response is raising your heart rate, giving you nice deep respiration to get more oxygen in, and various other things to allow your body to decide to do one of two things, either run from danger or run towards danger. This is all a condition of your autonomic nervous system. You cannot put your body in a fight or flight. Your body puts itself in a fight or flight. So what are the various different different things that happen to your body? First, your pupils dilate. Your mouth gets dry because you're no longer salivating. Your bronchos or your bronchio relax. Your heart rate accelerates. You no longer have other secretions and your body stops digestion. Glucose starts to be produced and released because you need that. That's your fuel. And then you get a boost of adrenaline. And then, because we don't want to be having to go to the bathroom, we no longer have any type of bladder contraction or movement of our bowels through the GI tract. If you look at all this stuff that your body does, it's putting you into that position, once again, as I stated before, to be able to do one of two things, fight or flight. Now, your body hates this condition. It does not want to be in this condition. The homeostasis of your body will say, no, let's get back to parasympathetic. We like parasympathetic. Parasympathetic is nice. We get to eat. It's referred to as the feed and breed of life. It's when you're relaxing, your digestion is is starting to take place. So as your body starts to get away from that fight or flight, your pupils will begin to constrict again. You will now have saliva in your mouth. Your lungs start to constrict normally. Your heart rate slows down. Your bowels start moving again. Now your body wants to digest what's in it, so bile gets secreted. And your bladder contracts. Pretty much the position or the the condition you are in right now. If you're sitting, chilling, listening to this podcast, you are in a parasympathetic mode. And your homeostasis is cool. I'm, I'm relaxing. I'm having a great time. This is a great podcast. Wow, I'm learning a lot. So that's what you're doing right now. Think that's the condition your body always wants to be in. Now, though we can't put our body into a fight or flight, I can't be like, fight or flight powers, come. No, that doesn't happen. But there are times that we want to put our patients into this condition because we need what that does to help them. So think about the person who has the asthma attack or an anaphylactic response. Their their, uh, bronchioles are filling up with mucus or having difficulty breathing, and we want different things to happen for them. So this is why we will use beta-1 and beta-2 drugs. Later on in other lectures, we're going to talk more about those, but beta-1 are drugs that increase heart rate and increase increase force of the heart. Beta-2s dilate the bronchioles. And then the last type of drug we have is an alpha-1, which is a peripheral, uh, where peripheral vessels constrict. Now, a beta-1 and beta-2, those drugs are what you refer to as norepinephrine and epinephrine. 
We will be talking about those in later lectures, but I'm just kind of giving you a little tidbit before we get to those lectures. The last takeaways before we end this lecture is remember, the most sensitive indicator to cerebral brain dysfunction is altered level of consciousness. This is why during your assessment, we have to determine if someone's responsive, we have to determine their responsiveness and their orientation. Are they alert? Are they not alert? And if they are alert, how alert are they? Are they what we call ANO3 in LA County? Do they know their name, their age, and where they're at? Now, a cool little acronym to think about what may be possibly wrong with your patient is AEIOU TIPS. That's an acronym to remind us that there are various different things such as alcohol, epilepsy, insulin, oxygen problems. Those, each one of those letters stands for a possible medical emergency, and we will definitely have that in another lecture. So as far as your nervous system lecture, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. It's a quick, short one because of the simple fact that we had that previous lecture and some of what was in today's lecture was in that previous lecture as well as each lecture builds upon the next. So I challenge you to listen to the next lecture. It will be uploaded soon. I look forward to talking to you guys again. Have a good day. divisions of the nervous system and functioning of the nervous system. Okay, so let's talk some basic nervous system. We have the central nervous system, aka CNS, and then we have the peripheral nervous system, aka PNS. The central nervous system consists of your cerebrum, cerebellum, brainstem, and spinal cord. Your peripheral nervous system consist of cranial nerves and spinal nerves. Fortunately for us, we only have to memorize a few of the cranial nerves and one spinal nerve. For the purposes of EMT level training, our nerves are both motor and sensory. Motor in the aspect is that we can tell our arm to move. This is the motor function of a nerve. As far as the sensory, this goes back to, hey, that's hot. Your body senses that a pan is hot and it sends that electrical information to your brain to let your brain know, hey, move your hand away from that pot and don't touch it. So this is the two different ways that our nerves work. Our brain and our central nervous system controls all the activities of our body, both voluntary and involuntary. So voluntary are those things we just got done talking about. If I want to go to a, go for a run, that's a voluntary thing that my body, that I can control my body to do. Involuntary would be those things such as food digesting um, in the GI tract and moving its way to be excreted. These are things that I cannot stop. So, or the heartbeat. Though we can control our heartbeat so to speak, by slowing it down, stimulating the vagus nerve, I can't stop my heart. 
So in a way, the heart is both slightly voluntary in the fact that I can control it by slowing it down, but in reality, it's an involuntary because there's nothing I can do to stop it. Now, the central nervous system, our brain, and spinal cord are protected by the meninges. The meninges are those three structures, the dura mater, arachnoid, and pia mater, which protect the brain and spinal cord, so don't forget that. Now, unfortunately, by design, our brain and spinal cord make up the entire area, or I should say filling that entire area that the meninges protect, leaving very little room for error or aka bleeding. If a patient is having some type of bleed in the brain, that will put pressure on the brain and subsequently begin to push down on the brain, causing the brain to collapse on itself. So it is very important as an EMT that we know those signs and symptoms of intracranial pressure so we can properly treat the patient and minimize the damage. Now, the brain and spinal cord are just not in this cavity of meningi. There is some cushioning known as cerebrospinal fluid. It's a yellowish fluid. It stays intact unless there's some type of trauma that causes a break someplace. Sometimes during trauma, we will have someone who has a basilar skull fracture, and from that fracture, we will see a mixture of CSF fluid and blood coming out of the ears. It's kind of when we do a blot test when we see this. We'll take a 4 by 4 gently put it next to the patient's ear, and when you bring that 4 by 4 out, you'll see kind of like a spotting halo effect, and if you see that yellowish fluid, that means that the patient has some type of crack or a fracture in the skull causing CSF fluid to leak, which is definitely not good. You should be worried about CSF leakage for people who suffer a significant head injury. Um, sometimes we can essentially tell if someone has a significant head injury because they have battle, battle signs, which is bruising behind the ears, raccoon eyes, both eyes are blackened, not because of trauma, but because of the trauma actually to the head, as well as seeing blood physically leave the ears. When we see these type of injuries, we definitely want to check for CSF fluid leakage. Now let's talk about the brain a little bit. The brain is made up of three structures, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the brainstem. The cerebrum makes up 75% of the brain volume, and it's broken into two hemispheres, and of those hemispheres, there's four lobes. According to literature, the cerebrum is the center of intelligence, responsible for learning, language, personality, voluntary and involuntary functions. Now what I want you to remember as we go through this is that much of this stuff is nice to know. It's not going to be tested during block exams of your EMT program or on the final exam. You probably won't see specifics regarding the brain even on national registry. But once again, this is nice to know stuff because if you know how the brain is broken up and then you have a patient who's suffering from something, you might be able to know that there might be a certain side of the head that suffered some type of trauma. So once again, you go from being a good EMT to a great EMT. 
Now let's talk the four hemispheres. We have the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is behavior, emotion, personality, creativity, and problem solving. Think this as this is exactly who you are. 100% this is your personality. If you were to suffer damage to the frontal lobe, there could, there could be a possibility that you would not be the same person. Um, plenty of movies have depicted this, especially when you watch those movies of people getting frontal lobotomies, uh, uh, brain electrocution, those type of things. Now, your parietal lobes are responsible for sensory, taste, temperature, touch, and proprioception, which is spelled P-R-O-P-R-I-O-C-E-P-T-I-O-N. Think finger to nose. If a police officer was conducting a field sobriety test and they tell their suspect to close their eyes, put their head back, extend their hands all the way out, and with one finger point to their nose, Someone who's, not under, someone who's not under the influence of alcohol will be able to put their finger to their nose because their body knows exactly where those things are at. This is why when people are under the influence of alcohol, they miss their nose and they'll hit their cheek, they'll hit their chin, maybe their forehead. This is what that proprioception is, or proprioception is. Next is your temporal lobe. Your temporal lobe is responsible for hearing, processing, auditory, information, thought before speech. So like for me, I probably have an undeveloped temporal lobe because I tend to speak before I think. So um, I'm going to blame it on my temporal lobe next time I say something I'm not supposed to. Last but not least is your occipital lobe, responsible for vision, processing visual information, and depth perception. Now the next brain structure is the cerebellum. The cerebellum is responsible for balance, muscle, coordination, fine movement, and involuntary area. Now, if you want to think where is this in relation to the brain, that cerebrum, which makes up 75% of the brain, is on top, broken up into two hemispheres, four lobes. The cerebellum is directly underneath that to the back of your head. It's a, it looks like a different color. Actually, if you were to look at pictures of it, it kind of looks like it's a has or made up of like stringy looking process. So to the front of the cerebellum is the actual brain stem, which then goes down into the spinal cord. This is responsible for, this is everything responsible for life. Your cardiac center, respiratory center, vasomotor center, and your reticular activating system, otherwise known as RAS. Without a brain stem, death. <laughs> 